Welcome, listeners. We're so glad you could join us for our next episode of Listen, Learn, and Explore. I'm your host, Marguerite McLaughlin, chair of the Pioneer Network Education Committee. This wonderful new educational innovation pairs a recorded audio podcast with a virtual variation of a learning circle. Listeners will have an opportunity to hear unique insights on a variety of topics from thought leaders in the field of resident-directed care. Following the podcast, the Pioneer Network invites listeners to register for an interactive program where you'll have the opportunity to join others in a deeper, live, and hopefully lively conversation with the podcast guest speaker. In this month's Listen, Learn, Explore episode titled, Do You Know Your Residents? Dr. McNichol will offer insights into an array of COVID-related issues such as delirium and sepsis, showing how a person-centered lens can make a world of difference in supporting the care of elders. After listening to the podcast, register to join Dr. McNichol on February 25th from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where together we'll continue to learn and explore the Did You Know topics presented in this podcast. Let me tell you a little bit about my friend, Dr. McNichol. She's a student of aging. She has spent a lifetime working with elders and absorbing insights into their lives, their hearts, and their needs. As a geriatrician in private practice who serves in nursing homes, greenhouses, and the hospital, she has a great deal of wisdom to share about the care of elders, and even more since the COVID pandemic. The underlying theme of her life and work, however, is the process of exposing the rich tapestry of care that can be optimized by knowing each person individually and having a sense of who they are. Dr. Lynn McNichol is Associate Director of Medicine and is a Director of Education for the Division of Geriatrics. After completing a fellowship in geriatric medicine and clinical epidemiology at Yale University in 2002, Dr. McNichol joined the Faculty of Medicine at Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University. She's also the Director of Quality Management and the Outcomes for the Department of Medicine and Director of the Scholarly Concentration Program, as well as the Scholarly Concentration in Aging. She specializes in quality improvement initiatives in the hospital setting and improving care for hospitalized older persons. She was a consultant for Health-Centric Advisors, the Quality Improvement Organization of Rhode Island from 2004 to 2018, specifically in hospital and nursing home related matters. She's an expert consultant for the American Geriatric Society Co-Care, ortho initiative aiming to disseminate the geriatric surgery co-management care model. With all that said, I want to introduce my good friend, Dr. Lynn McNichol. Thank you so much, Margie. It's a pleasure to be here and to discuss a very important topic with uh, you and and hopefully with some of our colleagues later on in our um, online session. What I wanted to talk about is how do we manage delirium and sepsis in uh, nursing home residents. Um, delirium is something that I've uh, studied extensively over my career, and it's very important for me that we figure out ways to manage this better. Um, sepsis is uh, also an important topic that I've worked with, and I've done the ICU collaborative in Rhode Island uh, with health-centric advisors for many years, and sepsis was one of those main topics that we worked on. I'd like to bring that 
um, issue to the nursing home so that we can talk about it and figure out best ways to um, manage this among our nursing home residents. I wanted to maybe talk a bit about what are delirium and sepsis? Um, how do they relate to our nursing home residents? What are some of the best practices um, for caring and managing those syndromes um, in, our, in our setting? And also how does COVID impact that management? So delirium is an important um, physiological change that occurs where people get mental status changes, they get inattention, um, disorganized thinking, an altered level of consciousness that occurs acutely in the setting of an acute medical problem. It can be related to medications, um, uh, altered uh, electrolytes or um, metabolic problems, but often also related to infection. Sepsis is something that occurs as an infection within the bloodstream uh, from uh, any source, whether it's um, uh, urinary tract infection or pneumonia or endocarditis. Um, and it's a very, it's an important syndrome because it's extremely life-threatening and it causes a dysregulation in the body um, as as a response to the infection that leads to tissue damage, organ failure, and um, death. So um, sometimes sepsis then leads to severe sepsis, which involves organ uh, failure, and then often to septic shock, where you get hypotension and then you need to be on a ventilator to survive. So those are brief definitions. Um, Delirium is something that we can uh, we can talk a little bit more about. Um, it's something that is important to identify, and that's one of the key features. Is that uh, if you don't identify delirium, then you're not going to look to see what the cause of the delirium is, and you're not going to put in interventions to fix the delirium or reverse it, because delirium is a reversible. Um, um, phenomenon. Uh, but if you don't identify it, you, then you're not going to do anything about it. Uh, to be able to identify it, you need to know what the baseline is. And in a nursing home setting, the great thing is that oftentimes we have consistent staffing. And the CNAs and the nurses that are taking care of our residents are going to know them intimately very well, and they're going to be able to identify changes quickly. You have to still be attentive to those changes. You have to pay attention and recognize that a change in a resident is not um, uh, is important. That's okay. <laughs> So it's really important to be able to identify a change and it's easier in a nursing home setting where there's consistent staffing. Um, even with consistent staffing though, it's important that um, the staff recognize that there's a difference and that it's an important difference that might be a, a medical cause. If they don't recognize it as something that's uh, important or that's delirium, then that person is at increased risk for dying. In the hospitals, 
Dr. McNichol, can I interrupt you for a second and just ask, um, so um, how, how is, is there something that you can think of that would help an organization to help create that kind of awareness in their staff, like um, training or like, but how, how, how do you, how do you get people there? I think uh, as a quality improvement uh, person, I often feel that we need to use real cases. So if you have an incident that occurred in your facility, somebody who had unrecognized delirium and had a negative consequence, that is a perfect time to use that case to illustrate where where we failed, where where were there opportunities that we could have identified delirium sooner and perhaps prevented the negative outcome. I find that using cases where you, you've been personally involved is much more impactful on the team and the nursing and the staff to be able to um, make an impact in future practice. Of course, education and training, especially if there's been a negative event, but um, the most important part is um, um, having an awareness of it. Um, being able to identify it is important and there are screening tools that we can use. There's a confusion assessment method, which we use a lot in the hospital setting. And it really is those four features that I mentioned earlier, um, an acute change, inattention, which is extremely important in delirium, somebody that's no longer able to focus on what you're saying or their eyes are wandering all over the place, that's inattention. Um, the third feature is altered um, uh, level of consciousness. So they're either hyperactive or hypoactive, which is a change from their baseline, and um, uh, disorganized thinking. So somebody who's more confused than, than their baseline or newly confused when they weren't confused at baseline. So identifying those four key features is really important. And if there's if you can keep that in mind and you notice those things um, and you catch it early, then you might, you might be able to implement some changes in their care or their evaluation that will alter uh, their outcome and potentially uh, save them because um, people who develop delirium are at higher risk of dying. Um, Great, great. Um, so much of the burden of delirium sometimes rests on CNAs being attentive to that. And uh, I guess, um, are there any are there any tricks uh, to helping folks to kind of be aware? So, um, and like I said, knowing the baseline of the person is really important. Um, and they are the ones who know them best. And they're the ones who are going to be able to identify a change. Um, having the nurse uh, understand and recognize that there's a change and listen to the CNA is really important. Having proper handoffs between shifts and saying, you know, something's a little bit off about so-and-so and not just... Uh, feeling that it's just another UTI, maybe thinking about other other causes, um, medications, other illnesses that might be causing it. Um, I think what's also important is the nursing staff communicating with the medical staff, the nurse practitioners and the physicians involved with their care. A lot of this is done under as telephone medicine. And um, 
the physicians and, and nurse practitioners rely on the information that's being provided by the nurses. So it's extremely important that the nurses relay their concerns to the medical staff well and, and using, you know, SBAR or some other communication tool that will help um, the nurse relay any important information so that it, is, it isn't dismissed by the medical staff either. Um, what we see a lot is this dismissing of changes in mental status or uh, they didn't sleep well last night, um, they have a new medicine or they were too active or not active enough and that's why these things are happening. And we don't wanna be dismissive of changes in somebody's condition because it could mm -hmm. be delirium. Um, I'm sure the group is, uh, um, I'm sure the group is, oh, I'm sure the group is familiar with the S bar, um, but just to be safe, you know, the S is situation, the B is background, the A is assessment, and the R is recommendation. And I would like to encourage the nursing staff uh, on this call to be really proactive about their recommendations. Um, they know, sometimes they know the resident better than the medical staff. Um, most of the time they do. Uh, they interact with them a whole lot more than we do. And so, you know, just uh, saying, I think that this is what we need to do. I think we need to evaluate for this, or maybe it's that medicine that we increased last week and so forth. Um, just a comment about sepsis. So, um, a lot of people who have delirium might have sepsis, but um, most people who have sepsis also have delirium. So one subset of delirium is uh, the evaluation of a septic patient. And uh, if you have sepsis, <coughs> excuse me, if a resident has sepsis, that is an emergency and we need to figure out uh, whether we need to send that person to the hospital because they can deteriorate fairly fast. And once they deteriorate to a point where they're in septic shock, it's almost too late um, because they get transferred to the hospital and sometimes they die en route or in the emergency room. So we need, it's really important to identify sepsis and to act quickly. Um, and doing that is also important in the setting of advanced directives. So having clear advanced directives is extremely important. Um, oftentimes I see advanced directives that say, you know, uh, do not hospitalize unless there's a reversible condition. Um, delirium is a reversible condition. Sepsis is a reversible condition. It's, it's always unclear to me what that means. And sometimes if you ask 10 different family members, it's going to mean 10 different things. Um, but if uh, you identify somebody as potentially having sepsis, then you need to quickly act upon it, get family engaged, get the medical staff engaged, and um, if indicated, send them to the hospital as soon as possible, unfortunately. I hate sending people to the hospital, but that sometimes that's the indication you need to send them. Um, and sometimes uh, I would recommend that the medical staff could do a televisit. 
sometimes they don't really understand personally I can say for myself I don't often appreciate the urgency of a situation until I physically see the person and I I see how toxic looking they are um, perhaps I'm not listening that well or I'm not um, sensing the urgency in the nursing staff uh, but doing a televisit and looking at the resident and seeing how they're ill uh, very ill can make a difference so um, I'd like to just talk a bit about the impact of COVID on delirium and sepsis um, many of you have had to deal with outbreaks in your facilities. And what's been interesting in delirium uh, rates is certainly a lot of COVID uh, residents who become ill uh, will experience delirium. The type of delirium that we've identified has been often hypoactive delirium. And that's good and bad in the sense that um, it, it's uh, easier to manage from a nursing standpoint. The problem is that it's often under-recognized. Hypoactive delirium tends to be more under-recognized than hyperactive delirium. Um, and the problem is that um, with COVID, you can also trigger the screening criteria for sepsis. And sepsis criteria, um, include uh, heart rate changes, uh, fever, um, uh, respiratory rate changes, and all of that can occur with COVID. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're septic. So it makes it even harder to figure out if somebody is severely ill and um, needs to go to the hospital or it's COVID that you can sort of manage in the facility. Um, unfortunately, I don't have any great um, suggestions for figuring that out other than uh, if their changes are happening very quickly, then they're, you're probably dealing with sepsis uh, rather than um, COVID infection. And you could consider getting blood cultures and doing a workup uh, with chest x-ray and blood work, but sometimes it can be difficult to figure out. Of course, um, uh, if somebody, if you're having an outbreak and somebody who's COVID negative starts to have symptoms of delirium, that should be a trigger for COVID testing. And as I mentioned, there's a lot of delirium with COVID. Uh, in one study, it was noted that 60% of, uh, of uh, a long-term care facility in Boston uh, where they had 500 beds, 60% uh, of the COVID positive uh, residents had delirium. And mortality was highest among those people who had delirium. Um, in addition, another study uh, looked at COVID positive uh, uh, people who were admitted to the hospital who were over 80 and the mortality was greatest among those who had delirium and who were long-term care residents. So um, it's really important for us to consider delirium as a, a risk factor for mortality when we're dealing with COVID positive residents. Another factor is when um, our residents get hyperactive delirium, it adds another layer of complexity. On the one hand, uh, they probably won't be wearing their mask. Um, 
they might want to pull your mask off. Um, they might not be willing to isolate or quarantine. They might be um, trying to get out of their room if they're ambulatory. And of course, our PPE is deliriogenic. I mean, it makes people quite agitated. Um, people will um, not recognize who we are. We become strangers to them. It's very difficult for them to understand what's going on when people are coming at them with all these masks and gowns. And we all look the same. And they can't hear us because we've got two layers of masks on. And we sound like Darth Vader. So um, it's really difficult to, to manage, especially the agitated um, resident with delirium. The challenge is trying to, to manage them without antipsychotics or other medications that are going to cause uh, more problems for them. Um, and that's really difficult to do um, in, in an outbreak. Dr. McNichol, can you expand on um, the, the art of person-centered care when it comes to taking care of folks with delirium or sepsis? Certainly. So as I mentioned earlier, it's extremely important for people to um, understand and know the resident um, well so that they can identify changes in their status. As you mentioned, this is something that could be life-saving for a resident. To be able to identify that they have delirium and or sepsis is really important. And the CNAs and the nurses are key in identifying that because they're they're going to be, you know, physically present, and the medical staff are intermittently present at best. Um, having a, an understanding of their residents' wishes is also extremely important, so that they can make decisions that are. Um, in the best interest of that resident and meets their wishes and follows their directives as best as we know. Um, and oftentimes the nurses, or ideally the nurses and the CNAs will have been involved and engaged in the discussions for their advanced directives. And it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's not just knowing whether they're DNR, DNI, it's really understanding the nuances of their decisions and what they would want in different circumstances. And of course, with COVID, um, it's been also very difficult for residents and family members to make these decisions. And um, there's, you know, changing information, changing situations. Um, sometimes we're in the middle of a surge, sometimes we're not. Um, and their decisions might alter depending on um, the information that's available. I think the residents now are making different decisions than they did in March uh, when it was very scary and the hospitals were shut down and PPE was not available and we didn't have a vaccine. I think that currently the decisions are much more in, um, much less fear-based and much more knowledge-based in terms of their advanced directives, uh, which I think is better. Um, I do think that a lot of residents chose to be do not hospitalized in the early phases of the COVID era 
when they became ill or delirious or septic um, because of the fear of everything that was going on and the lack of understanding that we might have treatment options for them in the hospital. Today, we have the vaccine. We have some treatments that might save lives. Um, we have a hospital system that's ready. We have PPE available. Uh, we have family members that can interact in some way with the decision-making process and, and perhaps even do visits in the hospital, which is very different than uh, where they would go and be isolated and un unsure about what the decisions would be made. So we have to, we have to also adjust our discussions with family members and residents so that um, we meet their needs currently. And uh, so I'm, I'm actually redoing a lot of my advanced directives conversations. Um, in February and March, we pretty much had advanced directive conversations with everybody uh, as the crisis was unfolding. And now I'm redoing those conversations because I wanna make sure that they are, again, as I mentioned, not fear-based, but knowledge-based. And so they're um, really uh, informed decisions about what they really want. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, very much so, thank you. Uh, Dr. McNichol, um, a personal question. Uh, what have you learned? Um, in the midst of COVID and in your practice and in your life with uh, working with so many older folks? I, I've learned that older people are quite resilient. <laughs> they are a tough bunch. They've had the worst um, situation for, during COVID. They've been the most isolated and they've had the highest risk. Um, I, I'm, I'm afraid of COVID mostly to give it to somebody else, I know I will be ill if I get it and I will probably, and I will be fine afterwards, most likely. Um, but an 80 year old who gets COVID, you know, 15% mortality risk, uh, 30, 40% chance of hospitalization, that's a very different risk than, than my risk. Um, so, but they've, they've taken it so well. I have ambulatory uh, patients who are doing well and my nursing home residents, you know, they just kind of go with the flow. Um, and then maybe that's why they're still alive and kicking is that they've, um, they've, they're able to handle these stresses and challenges in life uh, with such dignity and, and strength. Um, I've also learned um, uh, that it's so important to be non-judgmental uh, for myself and for my colleagues. Everybody's been making tough decisions that are very individualized and uh, whether it's about whether to take the vaccine or not, or whether to allow their kids to play baseball or basketball or go to school um, because then they would potentially be exposing themselves and bringing it to the hospital, whether um, they should have their grandmother live with them, whether sh they should go to work or not. Um, those are all decisions that are very individualized. And I've just been very mindful to, to not judge people or judge myself with any of these decisions. Do you have any thoughts about uh, going forward at once folks are vaccinated? 
Uh, well, I think at this point in, in our COVID experience, I'm I'm trying to go back to as much of a normal uh, working relationship as much. As, I'm trying to get back to as much of a normal um, work experience as possible. Um, that means um, monitoring our quality metrics. That means um, uh, starting new projects. Um, identifying opportunities for improvement and not just saying, well, we can't do it because of COVID. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think we can't use COVID anymore as a reason for not improving the care that we're providing to our, our residents and family members. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm just, um, we have to live with COVID and then we have to move forward and carry on and, and do the good work in the context of COVID. Um, despite COVID or in spite of COVID. So um, that's where I'm at right now uh, with uh, my work in the hospital and the nursing homes and our ambulatory practice. It's just, it's just a burden that we have to carry and we'll just move on. Keep, yeah. keep calm and carry on. That's my motto. <laughs> Love it. I, love I stole it from <laughs> World War II, <laughs> England. Um, it was there anything? Is there anything um, that's really struck you in the midst of COVID? Um, anything you've seen? Anything um, that uh, uh, people did differently that you think would be wonderful to keep or to to grow as a result of um, seeing people try new things? Um, I, I would think that we need to continue to celebrate our nursing staff. Um, the ones that uh, have continued to work on COVID units, um, I celebrate them. <laughs> I think that they are stars. And I, I don't think that we've really done enough to show our thanks and recognition for, for their sacrifice. Um, they, um, you know, when I work on a COVID unit, I would be there for a couple of hours and then leave. They're there for eight or 12 hours or sometimes two shifts, 16 hours at a time with the full PPE and all, all the restrictions that you have. Um, and I'm just amazed at, at their strength. Um, they're, they're the stars in all of this and, and the people who have survived COVID, it's because of their strength and, and their sacrifice. So I would, I would say I would, I would highlight more um, all the good work that the nurses and, and the CNAs and, and everybody that's working on, in the nursing home and and be more appreciative of, of their work. Well, I, I just hope that this has been useful for for the listeners to learn a bit about delirium and sepsis and how we can improve how we recognize it, how we manage it, how we uh, deal with it in the COVID era. And um, I'm looking forward to having a conversation with people. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Lynn McNichol. Uh, it's been my great pleasure to have our guest today um, talking with us about delirium and sepsis. Um, more to the point, we encourage you to join us on February 25th 
from 1 to 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, where you have the opportunity to meet with Dr. Lynn McNichol and ask her your questions related to this topic and also related to person-centered care. She's a wealth of knowledge, and uh, we hope you'll join us on February 25th from 1 to 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Thanks so much, listeners, for joining us.